We're going to walk through the story, and we're going to take note of certain verses. So chapter 4 revolves around a dream, just like in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that disturbs him. It distresses him. He doesn't know what it means. He knows that it's important, and he wants to find out exactly what it means. In chapter 2, if you remember, he did not want to tell anyone what the details of the dream were because he knew that his advisors would just come and tell him what he wants to hear, but he knew that he needed the truth. And so eventually he finds a man named Daniel who has the ability to interpret dreams. And here in chapter 4, he just skips the initial stuff. He, does, he tells everybody what the dream means, and yet his court magicians, they still cannot offer up anything helpful to the king. And you would think by this point he would just fire all of these men and just save his kingdom some money and himself some trouble and just go straight to Daniel. But he does ask them first and determines that they have nothing to offer. And then he brings Daniel in front of him. And when Daniel arrives, he tells him in verse 9, O Belteshazzar, and that was his Babylonian name, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. He knows that Belteshazzar, Daniel, has the spirit of the holy gods in him. There's something different about Daniel. And he expects Daniel to be able to give him the interpretation of his dream. And then he goes on to tell Daniel what the dream was about. He says, as he laid there in his bed, he saw a great cosmic tree, a great tree that was there in the middle of the earth, and that its height reached up to the heavens, and it could be seen by every nation at the corners of the earth. And it was a beautiful tree, and it had enough fruit inside of it to feed all of the creatures. All the birds had a place to nest themselves in its branches, and all the animals of the field could come underneath it and find shade. Everything lived off of what came from the tree. But then Nebuchadnezzar saw an angel, he calls him a watcher, who commanded that the tree was to be cut down and its branches stripped off of it. And when that happened, all the animals and the birds ran away and all that was left was the stump. And the angel commanded that a band of iron be wrapped around the stump. And the language here changes from speaking about a tree to the angel speaking about a man. And so then the angel says that he will be wet with dew and he will eat with the beasts of the field and his mind will become like the beasts that he lives with for seven periods of time. And there in verse 17 we are told the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And so the angel makes clear that the reason that all of this is coming about is that everyone will know that God is in control. Primarily here, King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're told something about his heart here that obviously Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is 
in control. And he needs to be told who really is. So again, here is this light motif, this theme that reappears. This is what God wants them to know, and this is what God wants us to know. He rules in the heavens, and He puts men in power for a time. What they have and what they do, they come from His Lordship. They come from His goodness. And to fail to acknowledge this truth is a great sin. And so after laying the dream out there, Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel for the interpretation. And it seems that right there on the spot, Daniel knows exactly what everything means. But he doesn't like it. We're told that it alarmed him. And he even said, may this dream be for someone else. Daniel was not excited at all at the fact that judgment was coming to Nebuchadnezzar. And we might find that just a little bit surprising if we have tracked with the story up to this point. Because we know that in the last chapter, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He tossed Daniel's best friends into a fiery furnace. And so wouldn't you think that when Daniel discovers that Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream that he is about to be chopped down to size, that Daniel will be a little bit excited about that. Well, the king is just getting what he deserves, right? But that's not what we discover here. But Daniel does not want this to take place in the life of the king. Now, we don't know exactly what Daniel's relationship at this point is like with Nebuchadnezzar. But he certainly doesn't want this to happen to him. But I have to imagine that Daniel is also concerned about the effects that will take place on the kingdom. And so when Nebuchadnezzar is chopped down, what does he see in the dream? He sees that all the animals flee and all of the birds have to fly away. So Daniel knows that Nebuchadnezzar is being used by God for the good of other people. What's going to happen to the people? when this great king meets this judgment. I think there's something instructive for us here. We might tend to get a little bit excited when certain rulers or kings do something stupid, and they do, because everything is videoed, right? Everything is seen. And we want everybody, it seems, to get what is coming to them. But Daniel does give us some instruction here that our desire should be, no matter what, the good of the land. And Daniel knew that God had placed Nebuchadnezzar in this land for this particular time. And we need to be reminded of that truth too. That our leaders are not there by accident. We cannot always know or understand what God is up to through them. But they're there for a purpose. And we do not or we should not desire their demise. Daniel did not hear, that is for certain. Here's the short of the interpretation when Daniel gives it. This is what he sees and this is what he knows. Nebuchadnezzar was the great tree that was planted in the middle of the earth. He stretched to heaven and through him much was provided for the creatures that took their shade or took their rest in his branches. But he was going to be struck down. 
He was going to be made like an animal, to think like a beast, and eat grass from the field, and be out there with the cows and the horses and all the livestock, and have dew on his back every morning, it seems, for seven years. A long time. And here again in verse 25, we are told what God is doing. He says, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He will. So He will be out there until He knows and will acknowledge that God is in control and that He rules over everything, including you, O great King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel here, he boldly speaks to the king. And he calls him to repentance. We see that in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. I mean, think about the boldness and the courage it took for Daniel to say this to this man. Strongest man in the earth. He is the great tree. But, O oh, king, you are a sinner. Break off your sins. Practice righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may perhaps, perhaps there will be a lengthening of your prosperity. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, this will not come upon you if you will repent and change your ways. That idea is dashed in the next verse. Because in verse 28, we see that all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he is out there walking on the roof of his palace, looking over everything that he had done. And he said to himself how great he was to have done such marvelous things. Essentially, he says, I am awesome, and this kingdom that I built is awesome too. And while the words were still in his mouth, a voice came from heaven that judgment had come and that the kingdom was being taken from him and he would live as a beast in the field until he knew his proper place under the God of heaven. And so it was. We read that his hair grew long like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws while he munched on grass with the dew on his back. And when seven years were up, he lifted up his eyes to the heavens, which signifies that he acknowledged now the power and the wisdom of God, and his mind came back to him, and he now praised the Lord. So brothers and sisters, I ask, what does God want us to see in this story 2,600 years later. It's an extraordinary story, is it not? Like when I read this one to my kids, this is one that always gets an effect to think that a man, a great man, had his mind removed from him for a period of time and he was driven out in the field and everybody who's out there on the road could have looked out there into the fields and said, yep, there's Nebuchadnezzar. He used to be up there in the palace ruling, but look at him out there right now with grass in his mouth. Think about that. Seven years you could have passed by that man out there living like an animal in the field. It is an extraordinary story. 
And then after that took place, God restored His kingdom to him. He was restored to his palace. And we read that all of his prosperity and more returned to him. The change that had happened was is that now he was a worshiper of God because he had been humbled down to the dust. So what does God have for me and for you here? Three truths. Number one, God rules over the kings of the earth and He gives to them what they have. Everything. Again, we see this light motif, this theme. God is in control. He wants us to know that. It's clear here. That is His intent. He is ruling the affairs of men from heaven. He puts these kings in power. He gives them their abilities. He uses them for His purposes. And at the time when this happened, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on earth. His name would have been known to the ends of the earth. He was truly the tree that cared for all of these creatures. But, but His greatness had been given to Him. He did not earn it Himself. God gave Him this kingdom. He had nothing in His hands. He accomplished nothing that God had not used Him for. So anything good that Nebuchadnezzar brought about, anything that he had learned even, God had given him the ability to learn it. Everything was from the hand of God. So anything good that he did, anything beautiful that he built, was enabled by a ruler who was greater than he was. And so he could take no final credit for anything that he had done. And that's exactly what he does when he's up there on top of that roof. He looks out and he sees it all and says, I am great. And God showed him. God showed him that he was truly the great one. And I think this gives us some perspective on any current leaders that we have in our city, in our state, any leaders that we have right now in our own country or around the world. They have been put there by God for a purpose that we cannot always understand. They are not in their positions by mistake. And they may want to take credit for any good that they do. In fact, we can guarantee that they will. Will they not? No matter if it's the guy that you agree with or the lady you disagree with, every one of them wants to take credit, it seems, for the good that they do. But we need to see things through a biblical lens. May the Lord use our leaders to give the birds a place to nest and the animals a place to find shade. And like I read from 1 Timothy chapter 2 today, we need to pray for all of those who are in high positions so that the people that are underneath their care will have peace and be able to live in a godly way. That God might humble those who take glory for themselves. And we pray for their repentance. Do we not?
So you and I need to understand that the kings of the earth, the power that they have, the might that they wield, the gifts that they've been blessed with, have all come to them through the hand of God. He sets them up and He takes them down. And He demonstrated this to the great and mighty King. And there will come a time, whether it is here on earth or at the final judgment, when every king who has ever ruled will see this same thing. But I don't think God just wants us to understand what's taking place in the lives of kings or big picture out there, right? We also need to understand that He is at work in the details in the lives of nobodies like me. God rules over nobodies like me and He graciously gives me what I have. He rules over regular people like yourselves. You know, the people that Jesus Christ died for. The people that have been promised eternal life. The people that God says one day will have an eternal weight of glory bestowed on them. God gives you your abilities. He gives you great blessings. He shields you from all sorts of harm that you'll never even know about. He is constantly, constantly caring for you every moment of every day. He is guiding you. He is always giving to you. And so how could we ever think too highly of ourselves? How could we ever get puffed up and take glory from Him? Paul says it like this to the church at Corinth. This was a church that was prone to think too highly of themselves. He says, what do you have that you have not received? Is there anything in your possession or anything good in your life that has not been given to you? Everything. Whatever you have that is good has been given to you by God. So how could you get puffed up over it? How could you think it's about yourself? You know, those things that you are really good at. Think about yourself for a minute. What are those things that other people praise you for? Your courage. Your beauty. Your smarts. Your work ethic. Maybe your Bible knowledge. Maybe you're a really confident person and people like that about you. Your awesome momness or your awesome dadness. Oh, you're just such a great dad. Oh, you're just such a great mom or a grandparent. Maybe people praise you for your job. Boy, you're so fortunate to have a job like that. Maybe it's your cool experiences. You've been places. You've done things. You're a great storyteller. Other people look up to you for that. Maybe it's your health. You take pride in how healthy you are. Your family. Your personality. You're just a joy. You're good-natured. Your portfolio. You've got resources. Your friendships. You're blessed with good friends. And maybe you're prone to think that it's all because you're so great. Your street smarts. 
your sense of humor. Whatever it is that could tempt you to think, yes, I am pretty awesome, whatever it is, you need to understand that it is God-given. It's been given to you by God. So even if, let's just say that you're the type of person that has worked your way up in some sort. You came from nothing, had nothing, background gave you no advantages whatsoever. You have worked your way up, and you think to yourself, but yeah, I did that. I worked hard for what I have. And we would say, yes, you did. But who was underneath all of that? Just like the Apostle Paul says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So he would admit, yeah, I worked harder than all of those other apostles. I put my life on the line each and every day. I have strained, I have struggled, I have learned the gospel of Jesus Christ. But yet it was God that gave me all of those abilities. There is no reason for us to boast or brag at what we have or about who we are. If there is anything good in you, anything worthy of praise, where has it come from? You do not have anything, anything that you have not received. A few days ago, my wife and I, we went to a restaurant. And inside this restaurant, maybe some of you all have been there before, I kind of hesitate to even say what it was, but the restaurant was all about the owner. I mean, everywhere you walked inside this place was his face. It was his story. It was all about him and how he had worked so hard, and he's still working today, and he is. Some of y'all, maybe y'all know who I'm talking about. That's it. And I, I, mean, I could not get out of the elevator without reading about the millions that this man has. I couldn't go outside and see the commercials with his face on it. That is his empire. That is his kingdom. He must hold on to it. And he needs, for whatever reason, to be told how great he is. And we thank God that he has a work ethic, right? We love it when people work and use their abilities even to employ and help other people. But there's a tendency inside of us to steal the glory of God. That man needs to understand that everything good that has come to him in his life has come through the hand of the Almighty. It has been bestowed on him. And only then are things made right inside of our hearts. Pride is there. And pride is there like that in every one of us. And it's abominable, isn't it? When we see it in somebody else. It's so clear. So easy to see. Oh, oh, that person's always talking about themselves. Do they never listen? Do they never ask questions about anybody else? They just talk, 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 talk about themselves. We see it in other people, but we need to understand that this stuff is in us too. And of all people, it should not be so in the children of God who have been given so, so much. Because let's face it, 
we have been given so much more than King Nebuchadnezzar ever had. Ever. We have been promised way more than he ever had his hands on here on earth. And so as great as he and his kingdom were, we've been given far more by the grace of God. And it's all a gift. There is no pagan U.S. president, no billionaire businessman, no Middle Eastern prince who can claim to have received more than we have. No one. And so God's grace, it should, should it not strangle out the pride that is in our hearts as people who have received so much and did not earn any of it. Who did? Jesus did. He's earned it all for us and bestows it on us over and over and over again and promises us things. He promises us that we will not simply rule kingdoms. We will rule worlds with Him and judge angels. We don't deserve any of this. And yet by the grace of God, He pours out so much more than we deserve. And what happens? We're prone to start thinking, I'm prone to start thinking that I deserve it. Or I have contributed in some way or another. But the gospel of Jesus Christ should humble us to the dust because Christ has done it all. I am an unworthy sinner, but God has shown mercy to me. And the same is true for my brothers and sisters who are here today. There should be no room in our hearts for pride. But sin runs deep in us and fertilizes the soil that's down in there so that pride is constantly popping up like weeds everywhere. God will humble us and praise God for it through the gospel of His Son. God will bestow on us far more than King Nebuchadnezzar could have ever laid on his bed and dreamed about. And we just receive it because of what Christ has done for us. And if that has little or no weight to it in our souls, may the Lord humble us with whatever is at His disposal. If He has to drive us out into the field that we might eat grass like an ox, if that's what it takes. God, do it. He knows what is best. And He will do it in our lives until we are able to say, let the man who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or learn to say, as King Nebuchadnezzar did, his last words in this book, now I praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven for all His works. Yes, even driving me out into the field to eat that grass like an animal. All of His works are right 
And we'll look back on our lives too and all the hardships, all the difficulties, all of the things that we would not have brought upon ourselves. We will look back at all of those and see the wise hand of God that He was humbling a sinner like me, preparing me to worship Him forever in His kingdom and say, all of your works are good and your ways are, dr- are just. And those who walk in pride, He's able to humble And He's not only able to humble, but for those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, He must and He will humble. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that we can gather in this place and read about this King who was high and mighty and lofty in His heart, but You chopped Him down for a season so that He might repent and worship You. And we admit that in this room there is pride amongst us. And we ask as your people that you will do whatever is necessary to humble us and prepare us to worship you as you deserve forever in your kingdom. Work it out in our lives. We will trust everything, every experience, every need, every concern into your hands because you are working them for our good. We thank You for Your calling. We thank You for Your wisdom and Your sovereignty. And we trust, Lord, that when we arrive into Your kingdom, we will be the most humble of people. You will have taught it to us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please stand to your feet. We'll sing one final praise to the Lord before we leave together as a church family, the doxology.